and let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you'd help us to understand your word, to understand your son, to understand why he was born and why he came into this world, that we might listen to the truth. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Good evening. It's lovely to be with you this evening and to hear the great singing that you have and to hear the great words of the scriptures being read to you. You know, there's a great difference between myth and truth. Uh, Myths may try to contain and teach some truths about life, but they are fundamentally fictitious. They're not true and they're not the truth. A few years ago in New York, Times Square, American Atheist Association put up a billboard saying, with a picture of Santa Claus and of Jesus on the cross, and the words, keep the merry, dump the myth. So tonight I'm going to be asking you the question about truth and myth. What are the facts of history? What actually did or didn't happen in the past? Was there a Santa Claus, a St Nicholas, or is it all myth? And Was there a man called Jesus who died by crucifixion? And part of the question of the facts of history is what can we know about the facts as well? With with what level of certainty do we have of the facts? For there's a difference between the facts of history, what actually happened in the past, and the facts of our writing history, what we can know and what we can write about. But let's start with the facts of Santa Claus. Leaving aside reindeers, chimneys, Mrs. Claus, the history behind the myth is supposed to be that of St. Nicholas, a bishop of Myra in modern Turkey, who is said to have been born in 270 AD. However, the Oxford Dictionary of Christian Church says, scarcely anything is historically certain about him. And the New International Dictionary of Christian Church says, very little is known about Nicholas. Tradition has it that he was imprisoned and persecuted during the persecutions of Diocletian, and after release, it is said that he attended the Council of Nicaea at 325 AD. However, this is most improbable, as he's not in any of the early lists of bishops present at the council, nor referred to in the writings of Athanasius. The earliest references we have to him is a church that is built in his honour in 565 AD, uh, some 300 years after he was supposed to have been born. The rise of his popularity happened in 1087, when some people in Bari in southern Italy claimed to have found his remains some 800 years after he had been born. I'm not sure we should call St Nicholas a myth, more like a legend, an exaggerated story that has some basis of evidence in it but has been built and built over the years of which we therefore can now know very little. But Santa Claus, he's a myth a fictitious story trying to convey some deeper meaning. But compare that, or rather contrast that, with Jesus, the one portrayed as crucified by the atheists of New York and called a myth. What are the facts about Jesus? We're informed by first century non-Christian sources, both Roman and Jewish sources, as well, of course, as the Christian sources, 
that Jesus was crucified in Jerusalem by the Roman procurator of Judea called Pontius Pilate. This isn't a matter of legend that grew over time, like St Nicholas, but of consistent reporting from within the generation in which it happened. Indeed, the reporting is not just of his crucifixion, but even the more extraordinary concept of his resurrection from the dead, which is reported within that generation, but also consistently reported as the reasons for some of the huge changes that took place in the first century. For example, the massive cultural change that happened to the Jews, who embraced not singular mono-god, but now the three persons in one God, who move from Saturday Sabbath to Sunday, Day of the Lord. Or of the sufficient number of Christians to enable Nero, the Emperor of Rome, to blame Christians for the, for the burning of the city of Rome, just 30 years after Jesus had lived and died and rose again. The context of the society like that, and the reporting of individuals, I agree with the atheists. We should dump the myth and keep the merry. But if you want to dump the myth, dump Santa Claus. And if you want to keep the merry, discover Jesus. For then you will find a happiness and a merriment that goes way beyond our normal level of happiness. Joy to the world is a great song that we sing. Joy to the world, the Lord is come, let earth receive her king. Joy to the world, a saviour, a saviour reigns. Let men their song employ. Joy to the world, no more let sins and sorrow grows, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow. Joy to the world, he rules with the truth and grace. When was the last time we had a politician rule with truth and grace? You see, the claims of, of Christmas is that God, in the person of Jesus, came into the world to deal with our problems, to deal with our issues, to deal with our sins, to deal with us. Jesus brought a whole new relationship with God based not on merit and morality, but on forgiveness and rebirth. A new way of life that has transformed the lives of millions of people and hundreds of societies and brings joy and happiness that finds its expression in the marvellous music that is sung all around the world at this time in the singing of the carols. So I'm with the atheists. Dump the myth. Keep the merry. Dump the myth of Santa and keep the merry of Jesus. But of course the Jesus that the atheists image is not the happy little baby in the crib with the animals, but the crucified, dying, tortured Messiah. So let's go back to that history for a moment or two, starting with Pontius Pilate. Just in this month, right now, 2018, this month, Israeli scholars have announced that they've been able to decipher an inscription on a ring. They found the ring back in the, 1860, in the 1960s in Herodium, the old palace of Herod. 
but they haven't been able to decipher it until very clever photography of the last few weeks. And there on this ring it reads, Of Pilate. It's only the second time that we've found an artefact that referred to him. But we've always known of him, both from outside and inside the Bible. Pilate was known as the Roman procurator of Judea, a fairly small and unimportant job in one sense. He was appointed by the Emperor Tiberius in 21 AD, and he's hardly remembered in history except for the moment in which he met up with a prisoner called Jesus. As procurator governor, he had enormous powers. He had a small army at his disposal. Josephus, the Jewish historian, wrote how he antagonised the Jews from his arrival. Philo, the other Jewish historian, recounts how he continued to annoy the Jews. He was violently oppressive in the ways in which he ruled over Judea. Philo described him as, by nature, rigid and stubbornly harsh, and of spiteful disposition and an exceeding wrathful man. Philo also speaks of, the bribes, the acts of pride, the acts of violence, the outrages, the cases of spiteful treatment, the constant murders without trial, and the ceaseless, most grievous brutality. All this agrees with what we see of the man in the New Testament. In John's Gospel, for example, as we read, we see a man famed for his miscarriage of justice, seeking by political cunning, to run a court where an innocent man can be executed without qualm, and more than executed, crucified. That cruel Roman way of stamping their authority on the oppressed peoples, over the conquered peoples of their empire. No Roman citizen was allowed to be crucified, put up on a stake to be made a public spectacle in shameful nudity, slowly dying in terrible agony as the birds gathered around to gorge themselves on the human carcass. No Roman could suffer such, in, such ignominy. John's Gospel presents for us not so much Jesus' trial, but frankly, Pilate's trial. As he faces his 15 minutes of fame and fails comprehensively. The question of the trial is, who is king? Jesus is accused of claiming to be the king of the Jews. And the Jews understood what Jesus was claiming to be when he claimed to be the Messiah, the Christ, the long-awaited king of the Jews, who would bring in the kingdom of God. They understood. They knew, and they didn't want this Galilean preacher. So they accused Jesus before the Roman officials of being a revolutionary, of challenging Rome's authority and sovereignty. Now, Passover was a time of political unrest in Palestine. There were many Jewish revolutionary movements at the time. There were a group of terrorists uh, called the Sikari, uh, an English word for, for dagger, uh, because they were the dagger men. They carried a small dagger and specialised in terrorist assassinations. Uh, the city was filled, overflowing with pilgrims at the time, and it was a time of nationalistic sentiment. So naturally, Pilate was a bit unnerved. He was a bit concerned whether Jesus was the king of the Jews. Verse 33 of what we just read. So Pilate, 
entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? But Jesus doesn't respond as Pilate expects. For Jesus speaks in verse 36 there, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. And when Pilate challenged him directly in the next verse 37, he said, so are you the king of the Jews? Are you a king? Jesus replies then, you say that I'm a king. For this purpose I was born and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. And everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. It's as if Judea wasn't hard enough to rule over already, and as if Jerusalem was a melting point of, of fear, he had to handle this lunatic man who didn't answer the questions like he was supposed to answer the questions, this particularly difficult man who kept turning the tables on him. Throughout the trial, you, as you read this account, you start to ponder who is in control. The Jewish leaders, they kept pressuring Pilate, they don't come into the court because they don't want to be defiled for the great religious ceremony they're involved in at Passover. So Pilate actually has to do some shuffle diplomacy. He runs inside to question Jesus, and then he runs back outside to talk to the Jews, then he runs back inside to talk further to Jesus, then he goes back out again to talk to the Jews. He's got them, they've got him on a string. The Jewish leaders, they demonstrate the immoral hypocrisy of organised religion, demanding to remain ceremonially pure and clean while organising the murder of an innocent man. But it's poor Pilate who looks like he's on trial, for he finds no guilt in this man. There's nothing wrong with the accused, he will say. He knows it's a Jewish plot, but he can't work out what they're plotting for. After all, this is a harmless man. He's hardly a political threat. The Jews themselves handed him over to the Romans, so he has no army, he has no militaristic pretensions. To see him as the king of the Jews is frankly laughable. Pilate's only satisfaction is to put the sign over his head at the crucifixion that says, this is the king of the Jews. That's his one joke that he has. I mean, it's what they accused him of. It's what Romans do to kings. And anyway, it's the kind of pathetic king that the Jews would have. You can see Pilate wriggling to appease everybody by offering Jesus pardon as a Passover goodwill uh, gesture, and then forced to release Barabbas, the robber, who, according to Luke's Gospel, was not only a robber but a murderer and a genuine insurrectionist. Now, I guess by now that you've understood, I guess you've guessed that I'm an Australian. And you know that we celebrate Christmas in midsummer, and therefore, I can understand why you're thinking that I've completely lost the plot and I'm giving an Easter talk instead of a Christmas talk. Wrong end of the gospel, Philip. But look again at the claim of Christmas that Jesus made in response to Pilate. It's in verse 37. 
Then Pilate said to him, so you are a king? Jesus answered, you say that I'm a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. And everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. You see the Christmas claim that is there? The Christmas claim of the verse, for this purpose I was born, said Jesus. He was born. He was a man. It is critical to Christianity that Jesus is a historical figure, that Jesus is a man. He wasn't a mythical character, but a real man of flesh and blood like any other human. We're celebrating his birth. Oh, it wasn't necessarily the 25th of December. We don't know exact date. He was born. It, 25th of December has a 1 in 365 chance of being right. Uh, it was sometime before 4 BC that he was born, which is a little difficult seeing BC means before Christ. He was born before Christ, which is odd. But that's because of our medieval dating system is marginally wrong. We know he was born in the reign of King Herod the Great, and King Herod the Great died in 4 BC, and so he died sometime shortly. He was born sometime shortly before that. We know he was born in Bethlehem, raised in Nazareth, and was fully human. Yet the claim of Christmas is more than he was born. It also that he was born with a purpose. For this purpose I was born. And more, as he said to Pilate in verse 37, for this purpose I have come. I have come into the world. This was his repeated claim, and this is why his birth is celebrated around the world 2,000 years later. Because this is not just another baby. There are millions and billions of babies born, and I love rejoicing over every one that I ever see. I think it's a wonderful thing, but no, the world doesn't come to a stop because another baby is born. This is not the commencement of just another life, a birth from hum humans within this world. This is somebody who comes from outside the world into the world as a man, as a baby. So Jesus says in John chapter 6, I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Or again in chapter 12, I have come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. See, this is the claim of Christmas. This is why we sing God from God. Light from light. Lo, he abhors not the virgins who were very God, begotten, not created. Oh, come, let's adore Christ the Lord. Or again, Christ by heaven, highest heaven adored, Christ the everlasting Lord, late in time behold him come, offspring of a virgin's womb, veiled in flesh the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity, Pleased with man, as man with man to dwell. Jesus, our Emmanuel. Hark, the herald angel sings, glory to the newborn king. Oh, Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. But the claim of Christmas is not just that God has become man, but also the purpose for which he came. It's expressed in different ways in different parts of the New Testament. 
He came to do his Father's will. He came to save sinners. He came to redeem us from the law. But here, confronted by Pilate on this great occasion, I have come to bear witness to the truth. Ah, now there's a telling attack on Pilate himself, who is being politically forced to believe lies of false witnesses. What an attack on the man who lived his life on the basis of lies and deceit, tricks and a kingdom based on brute force and power. Jesus is the king like no other king, in a kingdom like no other kingdom of this world. This is a kingdom that is not of this world, but of heaven. This is the kingdom based, founded and lived, not by military power, not by economic dominance, but by truth. I have come to bear witness to the truth. And then comes the real barb. You know, it's in the tale. Everyone who is of the truth listens to me. Pilate, like any of us, knows the truth when he hears it. But our problem is, we prefer lies to truth. Oh, we want other people to tell us the truth while we excuse our own lies that we tell them. We only really want the truth when it confirms what we already believe. When it tells us what we already know. When it gives us positive things about ourselves. When it suits our own opinion. But the claim of Christmas is not just that God becomes man, but also the purpose for which he has come. That is to bear witness to the truth. And everyone who is of the truth listens to Jesus. And so, caught in the headlights, like some poor paralysed animal, we read Pilate's response. It's one of the greatest statements in the history of humanity, expressing political expediency at its best. It's one that will speak with real cogency to the postmodern mind, one that proves Jesus' point precisely. Let me read it again for you in context. You see, for this purpose I was born, for this purpose I've come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And Pilate said to him, <laughs> what's truth? What a pathetic answer. What is truth? Oh, it sounds so profound above the intellectual squabbles of those who pursue truth. It sounds so superior, a question, not an answer. Well, what's truth? But it's the coward's castle, placing yourself outside of contradiction and error, shooting down lesser mortals who believe something, avoiding having to confess ignorance or error, avoiding the hard work of finding the truth and discovery, avoiding the inconvenient and uncomfortable truth that will call you to account and repentance. It's intellectually cowardly 
not to commit yourself to even an answer. It's typical of politicians and their expediency to avoid the hard questions. When you're about to make life-changing decisions for others, in this case, you're about to condemn the man to death. But what's truth? There's no truth. What's truth, the cowardly pilot asks? He's the patron saint of all postmoderns. Look, Jesus, there is no such thing as truth. Everything's just a matter of opinion. Like your execution. That's just a matter of opinion. No, no, some people will think you're being crucified, but no, it's just a matter of opinion. Why, in a couple of thousand years' time, they'll call you a myth and they'll choose to celebrate Santa Claus instead. What's truth, though, Jesus? Have you ever met a postmodern who wants to have a postmodern surgeon operate upon them? It's all just a matter of opinion. I know you thought it was your leg, but I've gone for your arm instead. I thought that would be a better operation. It looked like a leg to me. There is no truth. What is truth? It's all just a matter of opinion. And so in answering Pilate, Pilate proves Jesus' point. Those who do not listen to the truth will not receive his witness. For he comes to establish a kingdom, God's kingdom, a kingdom not of this world in all its lies, a kingdom of truth and justice, of mercy and righteousness. Professor Thomas Nagel was a famous atheist, professor of law and philosophy at New York University. He wrote a book, What Does It All Mean? What, about life and basic philosophy. In it he wrote, but what's the point of being alive at all? Well, there's no point. It wouldn't matter if I didn't exist at all, or if I didn't care about anything. But I do. Oh, well, that's all there is to it. Now, there's a merry point of life, isn't it? I mean, that makes you want to sing for joy, isn't it? There's absolutely no point in life, but I think there is. But there isn't really. But let's sing again, shall we? Verse 2, he continues, If we can't help taking ourselves so seriously, perhaps we just have to put up with being ridiculous. There's atheism. You're ridiculous. We can make that into a song, can't we? We can sing happy, happy, happy till we're ridiculous. He concludes his book on the meaning of life and everything with this great sentence, Life may not be only meaningless, but absurd. That's why he's a professor of philosophy. Is he spends his life being paid to think when he actually thinks that the world is completely absurd. What a sad, pitiful, miserable carol service atheism would provide for us. It's like that famous conclusion of Professor Dawkins, you know, the atheist. He wrote, the universe we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if there is at bottom no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. Put that in a gas chamber. No good, no bad, just indifference. That's atheism. There is the most famous English atheist available today. Oh, we can sing happy choruses with him at Christmas, can't we? 
I like Thomas Nagel, the American. I like him because of his truthfulness. He wrote another book called The Last Word, which is about five books before he wrote the other book. And he wrote, I'm talking about the fear of religion itself. I speak from experience being strongly subject to this fear myself. I want atheism to be true. And then made uneasy by the fact that some of the most intelligent and well-informed people I know are religious believers. He continued, it isn't just that I don't believe in God and naturally hope that I'm right in my belief. It's that I hope there isn't a God. I don't want there to be a God. I don't want the universe to be like that. Here's <laughs> the joy of atheistic philosophy. Stick your head right in the sand as deep as you can get it. Because I don't want to look at the world as it is. Because it's absurd. And I'm ridiculous. And there may be God. And we don't want that. Under any circumstances. Here's the joy of atheism. Here's the merry atheist, fearing morality, fearing the answerability to God, fearing of God himself, fearing to face the truth and even acknowledge the possibility. Here is Pontius Pilate. Well, what's truth? I don't want it to be true. Jesus said, for this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone, everyone, who is of the truth, listens to my voice. I pray that each one of us here today may know him as our king. Because then you'll have a wonderful Christmas Singing of the King, joy to the world, the Lord has come, let earth receive her King, let every heart prepare him room. So I'm with the atheists, you see. Keep the merry, dump the myth, keep Jesus, dump Santa. That's what they are saying. For one is myth and the other is truth. Which will you listen to this Christmas? I'm going to pray in a few moments. I'm going to lead you in a kind of prayer that receives Jesus as King. But I mean, talking at you, talking at you, talking at you, you need time to think, think, think whether you'd want to pray a prayer to receive Jesus as King. Because it's one thing to sing. There's another thing to accept what you're singing. So the choir is going to sing for us this song that we were warned not to stand up for. They're going to sing for us this, this carol. And while they sing this, think of the words they're singing, ponder, whether you want to receive the King whom I'm going to lead in prayer for in a few moments and give you the opportunity to receive him this night. Thank you.